It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? I like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Welcome to Quarter Miles Travel. I'm Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Vornson. And we are excited to share episode three, where we explore the state of Maine and their quarter. Now, Quarter Miles Travel is all about taking the U.S. Mint state quarters, flipping them over, checking out the design on the back. Olivia, we've been having a lot of fun with that. We've been having a lot of fun. We've been discovering a lot of unknown stories, unknown figures, too. We have, because each state quarter has a design with symbols representing something that's special or unique about the state. And it could be a symbol, as you mentioned, or it could be something like a historic event or an iconic landmark or maybe even natural beauty, something organic. And in this state quarter, Maine, we're looking at the Pemaquid Point Light and a three-masted ship. Yeah, Maine State Quarter was the 23rd state quarter to be issued, and we had a chance to visit both. So as part of this episode, 
of Quarter Miles Travel. We're going to share an interview, but we're also going to talk a bit about how much fun we had selling on a ship, Olivia, that is really the way people used to get around. It's the way people used to get around and also the way that cargo used to get around. And we'll learn about what a big role these ships played in building cities across the U.S., building industries. You know, they were really the relied upon mode of transportation for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, explosively, things changed and we almost lost these ships forever. I know, I know. That's a very sad part of this story. And I don't want to take all of the thunder away from our special guest, who is Captain Kip Fowles, who's the captain of the ship that is pictured on the back or represented on the back of the state quarter. But that is a little sad part about it is that those ships are disappearing. But luckily there have been some people like Captain Kip who really care about these ships and preserving this part of history. And actually this kind of tradition of preserving them and converting them into passenger cruises started way back in the 1930s when a Maine artist named Frank Swift launched a Windjammer cruise line to preserve these beautiful ships and also provide an escape for those that wanted a break from those fast-growing cities that are still (laughs) growing today. And little by little, the industry grew and eventually led to the establishment of the Maine Windjammer Association in 1977. There are 12 vessels that are part of the association seven of which are National Historic Landmarks, and one of those is, of course, the Victory Chimes. So if you think about landmarks, usually you think of something being in one spot. It's not moving around. But the Victory Chimes, you can actually go and sail on that ship up and down the main coast. (laughs) Still living and breathing in a way. And it's actually the last of its kind. So the Windjammers as a whole are pretty rare but a three-masted schooner is the rarest of all. There's only one, and it's the Victory Chimes. And you know, this story uh, that we're gonna share you know, with Captain Kip is very, very intriguing, and you really want to know more. So as you listen to it, we encourage you, if you can, maybe take some notes, because you're going to want to go and do a little bit more research on the Victory Chimes. On the Victory Chimes, the culture of windjammers and schooners and how they help build the country And then today, how they're used as cruises. I mean, we had a lot of questions and curiosities going into this because it's so unique. So unlike, you know, most other cruises, of course, (laughs) that you can go on. So we went with wide open eyes and open minds and we learned a lot and had so much fun. Well, since you bring that up, Olivia, before we jump into Captain Kip Fowles' conversation that we had with him, Why don't you tell me a little bit, what were your thoughts as we kind of drove up and we saw the ship for the very first time? You know, I was thinking about, of course, Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) And I was wondering if it was going to be like that. I was worried about maybe being seasick. What were the rooms going to be like? Mm -hmm. And we were planning to be on there for four or five days. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, showers, food? I mean, how is that all going to be taken care of if we're out on the water going to the bathroom? (laughs) So there's all these little things that pop up and you realize pretty quickly it it is unlike anything else and it is a a very different experience, but it's also really enjoyable and authentic if you like that kind of adventure. I mean, you'll learn 
from Captain Files that these are not Pirates of the Caribbean ships. <laughs> uh, for clarification, those kinds of ships sailed across the wide open ocean. Mm-hmm. And these schooners were meant to sail kind of the narrow waterways right. nearer to the ports. And carry cargo. And carry cargo. Absolutely. So a very different type of ship. But I agree with you. I think I was thinking about the Pirates of the Caribbean or the, the ships that you hear about down in, in Florida, the Spanish ships. And just seeing it there, because we had done so much planning over the over several months leading up to it. So I think just my excitement, I was so just excited and anxious to get there and get started on it, that when I first saw the ship, I was just ready to get on. And to see the, you know, the tall mast and to see this, the flags flying on the ship and just know that we are going to be on that ship that was actually sailed back in the day by people carrying cargo and who were those people. What are their stories? I'm always curious about things like that when I see historic landmarks or historic homes or, in this case, boats. I'm just really curious about what the lives of the people who sailed those boats would have been. And there are some fascinating stories. Luckily, we got quite a few from Captain Files. But another thing, when you pointed out the masts and the sails, it kind of makes you think, do people still know how to work these things? <laughs> you know, because boats have changed so much. They have. They've changed a lot. And on the Victory Chimes, I got a chance to actually pull the ropes of the mast and get them up, get the sails up. And that was really fascinating. I had always wanted to do that. I'd always wanted to go on a windjammer ship and do that. So I got a chance to say, heave ho and pull the ropes and <laughs> do all of that. So that was a lot of fun. But I will say my arms were sore the next day, but that didn't stop me from doing it the next day again. It was a lot of fun. That was probably the highlight for me of the trip, was doing that. You were a very reliable crew person on the <laughs> ship. <laughs> well, I thought I had to earn my keep because I know back in the day there probably, certainly did. <laughs> there probably wasn't a lot of sitting around. You had to earn your keep in some way or another. And speaking of that, you know, the captain's going to talk a little bit about some of the things you can do on board. And after we listen to the conversation that we had with him, maybe we can follow up with a couple of ways that people actually can go, Olivia, and have the same experience that we had. So why don't we hand it over to Captain Kip? And he can tell us about the history of the ship. As you mentioned earlier, he'll talk about also, too, how sailing kind of went by the wayside because of other faster ways to transport things. So just a lot of great information that Captain Kip will share with us. And he's quite a character, so here's Captain Kit. Well, it was it was built at the end of the age of sail, when we still could make, generate income under sail. That means with no power, just a sailboat, <clears throat> and which was what everything was at one time, when the internal combustion machine came along. So it was, it was 1900, and the age of sail had ended, we just didn't know it yet. Um, and so, but there was still a, 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 a good financial reason to build a sailing vessel like this because you could generate income with it and so that's why she was built and it was was built in a little little village called Bethel Delaware which is right on the Maryland uh, border and a little creek <clears throat> I think it was the first town ever to become a national historic landmark the little town itself Bethel and so she was launched there and her purpose was to um, haul lumber from the eastern shore of Maryland to major east coast ports because at the time there was no way to get it there but vessel because there was no bridge. And she did that until all the trees were cut. Didn't take long. And then she was owned in, in, out of Baltimore, Maryland. She used to be owned by a group in Salisbury. Then she was sold to a group 
in Baltimore, Maryland called the C.C. Paul Company. And the C.C. Paul Company is now owned by the Bain Brothers, which still is in existence. And they owned four or five sailing vessels. And she had a route for years to, from New Bern, North Carolina, to Snow Hill, Virginia, back to Baltimore. And Snow Hill, Virginia um, had fertilizer plants, and she would take fertilizer. Um, and then in New Bern, they would, she would pick up lumber and bring it back. So she had this little program that she would do. And she got lucky. One is that she was built with very good wood. Uh, and two, she was um, always found a cargo so she could generate income. And three, she always had owners who would take care of herself. Now, when vessels like this were launched, wooden vessels, <clears throat> 10 years was a long run if they lasted 10 years. And so they never thought they'd last wood in 10 years. But these vessels built with such great wood, um, longleaf, yellow pine, Georgia pine, yeah, good stuff, that, that um, uh, such good wood that um, it lasted. It, so it didn't need a lot of maintenance. But the maintenance it did need, it was taken care of, and it was paying for itself. So she survived all that through World War One, the Depression, World War Two, and she actually did some some mine work looking for mines because she was wooden um, uh, out of Baltimore. And then, <clears throat> pretty much after World War Two, the internal combustion machine had taken over, and the age of sail was done. It was complete. It was done before that, but things kept it going. Like the Depression kept sail going, and then World War Two because fuel got ex so expensive that you could sort of make a go of it. And uh, by the end of World War II, it was over. And so a group uh, from uh, Annapolis, Maryland, a guy by the name of Noost, I forget his first name, K-N-U-S-T, and he's known in the history books as a railroad magnet, whatever that means. And so then he had been to Maine and had seen this small windjammer fleet that had happened in Maine with these old vessels, gave him a, a second uh, boost on life. So we thought he'd try that, and he bought two of them, the Levin J. Marvel and the Edwin and Maud, which is the vessel's original name. Maud without an E. Don't explain that to me, because I don't know why Maud with an E or Maud without an E. But Edwin and Maud were the two children of the first owner, Robert E. Riggin. And then she, uh, so she went into the Annapolis, out of Annapolis, Maryland, and started the Windjammer business, and sailed summers, which were a lot longer in Chesapeake Bay than they are here in Maine, um, with tourists, and up and down the Delmarva Peninsula, and anywhere from, you know, out of Annapolis. And it, back in, that was back in the um, late 40s, early 50s. And, and Chesapeake Bay was a lot different than it is today. Uh, so there were a lot of people that wanted to do that, and then finally he got tired of it, and she went up for sale in 1953, the, the end of his season in 1953, I think it was. And, and, and then, so a group from Maine that had been in the business knew of the vessel, the two vessels, the 11J Marvel and Edward Marvel, and they went down from Maine, we say, up to Baltimore. Went up to Baltimore to, to look at the vessels, or Salisbury, I think she was hauling Salisbury. They looked at both vessels, and they found this vessel to be in better shape, and she was brought to Maine, sold and then brought to Maine. In 1954, she started her first season in Maine, and that's when she got her name Victory Chimes. It was changed from Edwin and Maud because the Mainers thought that Edwin and Maud sounded like two mules, and Victory Chimes was a, well, the original Victory Chimes was a Canadian schooner that was actually 16 years younger than this one. That was launched on Armistice Day. And uh, when Victory Chimes were ringed throughout the land. So it means peace or end of war. And she hung, that vessel hung around Maine for a long time. <clears throat> and what had been lost by the time this vessel came to Maine in the 50s. So they named her Victory Chimes after that three-master. And um, she's been Victory Chimes ever since. Until 1980. 
Why? When she was sold to a group from Duluth, Minnesota that wanted to do windjammer business in Duluth. And they went to Duluth by way of Tampa, Florida. Kind of a long way around. But that didn't go and the bank repossessed it and it was brought back to um, St. Michael's, Maryland. A beautiful museum in St. Michael's. If you ever get a chance to go, there's a wonderful little maritime museum. And she sat there thinking that because that's her home, that would be a good, someone would want her and buy her a museum and want her and so because she's very unique. And then, I'll get into that in a second. But then she, um, nobody wanted her. And along came a fellow by the name of Tom Monahan, who's best known because he started this small pizza company, you might have heard of it, called Domino's Pizza. Right. And so he purchased it and restored it and had grander ideas of taking it to the Great Lakes and doing stuff. And uh, we never made it to the Great Lakes under his. But that's how I got back involved with the vessel. I sailed as mate on the vessel years ago. And then I got back involved um, through this stuff. And so I got back involved. And then it went up for sale. And it was going to go, and I thought that would be an easy sell. Here's a vessel that's been just over a million dollars put into a restoration. This is 1988. Good Lord. I mean, that's a lot of money in 1988. It's a lot of money now, but it was a real lot of money. And so a completely restored vessel. And any museum would love to have it because she is a one of a kind. The three-masted schooner was the most successful sailing vessel we ever built in North America. We invented this rig. Some Dutch people will battle that, but we invented this rig. If we didn't invent it, we perfected it. It was something that created this country. It created wealth in this country, and it did things that the European vessels couldn't do. And so <clears throat> it was an amazing vessel, amazing type of schooner rig. And so the three-masted schooner, we built as many as six masts, but uh, one seven-master. But it... it, it um, and there were close to 4,000 built in North America. And um, this is the only one to survive. It's still sailing. And so I said, well, this is going to be great. This will be an easy mark because it's so historic. It's right there with the Constitution. The Constitution was built with taxpayers' money to protect a vessel like this. This vessel was built with generating and, 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 and her history was so great. There was nothing else like it left. I found that to be wrong. Nobody wanted it. And so the only people that wanted it were a group from Japan. They were going to purchase it put it on a barge, take it apart, put it on a barge, take it to Japan, take it overland, and put it in a lake and make it a restaurant. Yeah. So anyway, um, I didn't think that was going to be a good idea because once she leaves, she can't come back. And it would have been America's last three master gone to become a restaurant, good Lord. i got to talk about a hand out of doing that. So, um, yeah, I, I did, and, and talked him into purchasing it. And there was another fellow that was working at Domino's Pizza, was head of Domino's Pizza Marine Division, and uh, talked Tom into selling it to us instead of the Japanese. And our purpose when we purchased it was to save it. And knowing there'd be a corporation or an entity or something in the United States that thought this was enough of a historic artifact to save, and knowing that with a certificate of inspection from the Coast Guard, she can generate enough income to pay for herself. It's not like you have to throw a lot of money into it. You just purchase it and it'd be gone. And so we purchased it with that in mind, thinking, and the only way we could own it is to put it back into the windjammer business and now start looking for that entity. Well, that was 28 years ago. <laughs> Nobody wants it. It's amazing to me. And it's sort of sad to me. I, I really feel sad that we don't have the foresight. I mean, the think of the things we say. Think of the things we do. Think of the money we waste. And not to protect a piece of American history like this. It's just amazing to me. Government's not interested in it. Nonprofits, museums don't want it. It's uh, simply amazing. And you can't convince a museum that it can pay for itself.
can't you can show them how it does, but you can't convince a museum. I mean, how do you think I've earned it for 28 years? It's not, I'm not a wealthy man. So, it, you know, they're all afraid of it because of its size. But it's such a piece of Americana. There's nothing like it. This is the largest American sailing vessel in existence. It is the largest commercially operated sailing vessel on the American flag. It's a national historic landmark. It's the only schooner in existence that was built two, three, four, any, any mass that was built in the Chesapeake Bay. And they built a lot of great ones. Nothing like it left. It's the only one left. And you can't give it to a museum. Uh, it's just beyond my comprehension. So anyway, so we're here 28 years later. And the only reason it survived from 1946 when she went to the passenger trade, 47 when she went to the passenger trade, till now is because people have thought, wouldn't it be fun to go on this old sailing ship? And so without that interest, this vessel would be, we did nothing but pictures of her. She'd be long gone. But that industry, and she's always been in private hands, which is cool too, isn't that? She doesn't get any grants. She doesn't get any tax breaks. And Congress, in their wisdom, when they decided to give private citizens the ability to own national historic landmarks and give them grants, they worded it to a, in such a way that it said structure. And the IRS came up, a vessel's not a structure, it's a vessel. Well, Congress thought everything they didn't know about us. And so, but to try to change that one word is simply impossible. And then I could go and I could have people donate money to it to save it, but, but you can't. It's a private entity. You can't because it's a vessel. You don't get any benefits. She's a national historic landmark. And you know what I get? Read that. A nice plaque that you taxpayers pay for. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful plaque. Well, look at it. It's a wonderful plaque. But I don't get any benefits. Nothing. If I were a lawyer and owned a building, I could go out and get grants to fix it and do all the stuff. But I don't want to jump on a lawyer. It could be a doctor. It could be anybody. But we're a vessel. There's no, there's no, there's nothing. There's nothing for us. And so, which is, that's another, you look at the government and go, why? There's eight of us. Why couldn't you help us out a little bit after, we have some vessels in this fleet that were built when Ulysses S. Grant was president, 1871. But don't you think the government would help that along? Do you think what we, how we throw money away at stuff? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's, I get off my high horse on that. But that's how the vessel got to where it is today. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. Here we are, sitting in the aft cabin. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it was the railroad then that kind of changed things. And changed railroad, the, the railroad is what took away this business. This business. Yes. Okay. Because up until, up until the railroads, time meant a little bit different things. The railroads are the ones that gave us Eastern time, Central time, because we all had to have a clock. And because the railroads, because of what they were, could make schedules. And a sailing vessel couldn't make a schedule because you relied too much on Mother Nature. And the railroad just relied on the tracks and the steam, and and they had fuel to make the steam and the water. That's what they relied on. And so you could get there. And... um, they were the first ones that start. People started wearing watches when the railroads started coming. You know, it's always you hear about the railroad watches and stuff, but it wasn't until, you know. But these vessels, good Lord, when this was built, it was, you know, to get it in July. That's great. Okay. Different time, different people, different way of life. So how, how is uh, the Victory Chimes different from the ships that would have brought people over from Europe? Oh, well, no, see, the, the, those what what we consider blue water vessels. And a blue water vessel is a vessel that was designed to go in the oceans. And Victory Chimes was, designed, was what they call a coaster, which was designed to go from 
port to port along a country, right? And not go across the Atlantic because conditions are a lot different out there. <clears throat> and so that would have been a full keeled vessel. And most of the time when she was built, there were some schooners doing transatlantic, but the most successful ones were the square riggers. You know, those things that um, Johnny Depp sails in movies that have square rigs and the sails behind them. Like this one here. And like that, that vessel up there. And so the winds get there. You get in the trader and the winds behind you and it goes along. But you can't sail very close to the wind. The, the sails don't work that way. You can't sail. Now this vessel can sail close to the wind, do a lot of things with a lot fewer crew. But it wasn't designed to go offshore, especially with a centerboard. You know, they wanted deep keel vessels. But this vessel was built like a box. This. And so that hold, holds more cargo than this. And so that's why they built it. And also, because the Chesapeake Bay was so shallow, it would sit on the bottom a lot. And so they wanted a vessel that was flat and sit on the bottom. And so... Was it in terms of the tides? Yeah, the tides and cargo and all sorts. It was shallow. They'd bump around a lot. Yeah. But the flat... The flat basically, basically, because it's shaped like this, it can, it can hold... It's easy to build, and you can hold a lot of cargo. So it was a very inexpensive vessel to build. And you could hold a lot more cargo. So than a, than a blue water vessel. And it took a lot more manpower to do ocean voyages. Now some of these schooners, some of the schooners did do, <clears throat> toward the end of their life, did do, go across the Atlantic. And they were deep keeled vessels in the schooner rig. But the schooner was never really a successful offshore. They'd get dismasted and stuff. They were never really, smaller ones were okay, but the bigger ones were never really, really great for offshore sailing. That's the big blue water vessels, right? the big square riggers. Those are the, you think of the term tall ship, which doesn't mean anything. It's not a term. If you asked a sailor a century and a half ago, point out a tall ship, you go, what the hell are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. That's a Madison Avenue term. It was created in 1976 when they needed a name when the first square riggers came to the U.S. And they needed something to call them because the general public didn't know what it was. And there's a poem by a guy by the name Macefield. And in it, it's a tall ship and a star, a star to steer her by. Tall ship, bing, and that's where it came from. Doesn't mean anything because everybody calls themselves a tall ship now. Mm. It's like now, you know what the kids call these things now? The pirate ship, mm. and that's all because of the pirate movies and Johnny Depp and his pirate movies. So any traditional vessel used to be a tall ship, but now it's a pirate ship. <clears throat> okay, I don't care what they call it as long as it brings people and gives his attention. It doesn't make any difference. Well, the name Windjammer, where does that come from? Well, that that's an interesting term. The term windjammer was actually a derogatory term um, originally. When the, the power vessels were coming into being, you know, and the guys that were just operating just under sail, no engine, they were windjammers. Ha ha, you're a windjammer, we'll beat you there, and all this type of thing. And so when Frank Swift started this business back in the 30s, taking people out, he was an artist from Camden. He didn't do it, but he, he bought vessels and people did. <clears throat> Uh, they all called them windjammers, and it was sort of a derogatory term. But he turned windjammer into from a noun to a verb. And it's what we do, not what we are. We call ourselves windjammers because that was a term that everybody sort of sees. But what, what we actually do is go windjamming. You take a, a, and it means a vessel that derives its power solely from the wind. It has no engine. <clears throat> Some of our vessels have engines. I wouldn't build one without one today. It'd just be crazy. But. So the more, some of the vessels that we have built for this business have engines in them. And we still call them windjammers. It's because what we do, not what we are. Although we call ourselves windjammers, but it's, it's because we 
do this particular business, mm-hmm. taking people on overnight trips and traditional vessels. So we, that's what we are. So tell us a little bit about the trip that someone can take on the Victory Giants. Well, you know, first of all, first thing you got to say, is, and, and you, you'll understand this, it's not a cruise ship. Nothing close to being a cruise ship. It's an old sailing vessel that has some cabins in it. And um, it's closer to camping than it is to the Howard Johnson's or the Holiday Inn. You know, you're not going to go in and find your TV and you, you know, you know. So it's it's um, it's sort of a, a glorified camping trip that you would take uh, on an old traditional sailing vessel. And I don't know what draws. If I knew what hit everybody's button about coming, I just advertise that way. But when you talk to people, it's all about well, they wanted to see what what an old vessel was like. They wanted to see the main coast. They like the food. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to come. Um, but you, you, what you can expect is um, a trip through one of the two best cruising grounds in the world, the coast of Maine. It's one of the two best. We have 3,000 islands. They go up 30 miles. Seasickness is not a problem. It really isn't. It's like sailing on the lake. We don't go, like if you're going out the Jersey Shore or out of Georgia, when you go out, you're out in the Atlantic. Here, you're protected by all these islands. So the seas don't get very big. You know, so you're in protected waters, and, and it, it, it hasn't changed much in my lifetime. You know, in 65 years, I haven't seen much of a change. I mean, more houses, a few more houses, but when we were sailing the other day, what, how many boats did we see? Three? Yeah, <laughs> there's nobody around. And this was great. It's, so it's not a wilderness experience, but it's an experience <clears throat> that um, that you won't see anywhere else. You can't see anywhere else. And it, it's fun to see it from the, the vessel of, of such historic nature. I have people that have been, I think the record was 65 times. Yeah, Isn't that amazing? She was a poet. And this inspired her. And she went four or five times a year from 1963 until now. She can't come anymore because of music. So um, there are a lot of reasons to come. But it's usually the, usually the common denominator at the end of the trip is it's the most relaxing vacation they've ever had. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And there's a lady who is on for the second time. 1960s yeah. or 70s she yeah. was on, yes. So and it touched her so much that she had to come back and bring the family. And yeah. She's been trying to come back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really cool. I have that a lot. I have I have pe- people that come every year, the same trip. And this is the only time they see each other. They're all great friends, but it's the only time they see each other. Every year is just one week. They all come back sailing. And now their kids okay. are doing Bringing their kids. So it's like the third or fourth generation of doing it. And it's a, it's a great family vacation. Bring the kids. We go to places where there's, I don't know if I should say this, no cell service. <laughs> so you have to put your phone down. Yeah. You have to put your phone down and actually commute. You have to communicate. Mm-hmm. It's a very safe trip. I mean, a lot of single women come because they feel safe. It's very safe that way. Could you talk more about like Maine's windjamming history? Sure. Well, it started in the 30s. You know, this artist in, in, in uh, Camden, Maine, saw the age of sail disappearing. <clears throat> and Maine, because of the islands and stuff, it had a lot of little two-masted schooners that would run cargo back and forth. They'd run produce back out to these islands. They would run cordwood back and forth. Anything they supplied was all supplied by the sailing vessels because we didn't have engines. <clears throat> and then the steamers started to come in, and then 
ferry service, and this, these, there was no reason for these vessels to be around, and you couldn't make money with them, so they were starting to disappear. And so a few old guys try to make a go of it, and uh, so he saw this, and he wanted to go sailing on them before they all disappeared. So he and a bunch of his friends went sailing. He said, well, that's not too bad. Could we hire you again and take all of our friends? And all of a sudden, there was a lot of people that wanted to do that before these vessels disappeared. And um, so we purchased a bunch of them and started this windjammer business, main windjammer business, out of Camden, Maine. Bought these little vessels. He wouldn't fix many of them up. He'd just buy another one, you know, let them go and buy another one. And uh, so it just sort of started. And I think the overnight business started. One of those day trips when the wind shifted, they couldn't get back to Camden. <laughs> so they anchored up somewhere. That wasn't so bad. But it was pretty rustic back then in the 30s and 40s. I mean, you know, you brought your own linen. You had a ply to mattress, and it was just a curtain. You know, and yeah, times were different. Times were, times were, it was just different times. Yeah. People were a little bit more relaxed about it. If I were getting into the business today, I'd probably redo all my cabins. Just and redo them all. Make them different. Modernize it a little bit. But, um, but they, it, it, um, they're, I mean, they're adequate. They're bigger. They're, uh, this vessel being the biggest, largest windjammer, my cabins are so much larger than anybody else's. And people look at them, they're small. I said, well, go next door. <laughs> they're small. Actually they're not bad. If you're spending all your time in a cabin, you're missing the point. Yeah. You're really missing the point. Now, sailing on a vessel like this, you're on a very small club. There's very few people alive that have actually sailed on an American three-masted schooner. And, um, you know, when you're one of those passengers, it's a small group. You know, can you give a certificate after this? I could give you one. I do have some. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. You can be an official Victory Chime sailor. Sure. Right? I can get you a tattoo if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> if you put the web page on it, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. <laughs> but I do have some passengers that have put tattoos. I have permanent tat Victory Chime yeah. tattoos. That's cool. That's really cool. I guess. I wouldn't, I, I, I've made it this far. In this industry, without tattoos and without piercings, and that was really the sailors that had all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, without kind of without caving into all the <laughs> pressure, because all my all my friends went and did it, but I didn't. I didn't. Thanks so I want to ask some questions about you, because I, I just about me. Yes, I just find Good you very Lord. fascinating. Mm. So first, I want you to tell uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and I'm kind born of way, I was born in a, in a little city called Bangor, Maine. Yes, I'm from yes. Bangor. Yes, I grew up there and, and grew up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunate enough that when I grew up, <clears throat> right so between halfway between Bangor and Ellsworth, was a lake. And I was fortunate enough that my family owned a home on that lake in the summertime. It was actually a, a, a purchase from, built by guys who were in the Civil War. So it's been in the family that long. Or the war between the states, I should say, for Georgia, right? Or the war of northern aggression. <laughs> Whatever it is. It worked yeah, yeah. for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah. And uh, so I grew up in Lake, so I grew up, I grew up on the water. And there was always, you know, I just liked the water. Boating was easy for me. It just, just came natural. And then when I was about 13, my father and his brother ended up with this friendship sloop, which was a sailing lobster boat built in 1912. 1912. <clears throat> and it was a sailing lobster boat before we had engines. They, they went out and sailed them. It was, called, it was built in Friendship, Maine. So they called them Friendship Sloops. And so then I came to the ocean when I was nine or ten. I had no idea this existed. I mean, I'd gone to the beach, but I'd never been out and looked back at this mm -hmm. coast. And I went, this is a pretty cool place. 
There's nothing else like this. Like I said, it's two, one of the two best cruising grounds in the world. Nothing else like it anywhere. And so I got hooked on it, and I really enjoyed it. And then when I was out here, I saw these larger sailing vessels, these windjammers. I went, now that's even cooler. Mm. So I had to, I said, I need to get involved in that somehow. Not that thinking I would ever make a career. This isn't something I planned to do. It's something I did. Because I, it came easy to me, not because I had this career path. It was very difficult to make a living <clears throat> doing this. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of risk involved. And so I, I, I um, but I kept doing it because I liked it and it came easy. And the job people were offering me jobs. And, and then I got a captain's license and kept doing it and doing it. I did other things. I, I would, I'd ski raced. I ran inns. I sold tires. I, uh, I did a lot of different I taught school for seven years. Imagine that. Teaching the youth of America in a private school called Tabor Academy in Marion, Massachusetts. I taught celestial navigation, piloting, and seamanship to high school boys and girls. Really cool. Good for you, Can you imagine paying money to have me teach it? That's really bizarre. <laughs> so, um, and then I got involved with a, with a child care agency that bought two large schooners. And we were taking out what they call, we call now adjudicated youth, or youth at risk. But they're called now adjudicated youth. And um, so we had, we took these kids to sea. Most of them were inner city kids. And it was an experience that was very foreign to them. It was pretty cool to see them develop. They were scared. They would really pay attention because they were, they were, they, they was out of their element. You know, you take them, the inner city, they were in their element. I was out of my element. And so, but I took them to sea. And, and so I did that for three, four years. And then uh, Domino's, and I took some time off and back skiing. And then Domino's hired me, and here I am 20 years later. <clears throat> it's not thinking that this is a career path, it just sort of happened. You know, so I, I spent most of my life in Maine. Um, I have this passion for skiing, and I still ski 80 to 90 days a year. Work for a TV station in the winter. Still race at an old age, a master's program. I thought I was going to be the fastest skier in the world, you know, until I raced some of the fastest skiers in the world, and they were done in the pack a lot and halfway home before I finished the race. <laughs> I said, I better find another career path. Because I'm not as good as, as, you know, as these people are. Good Lord. So, uh, still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Well, do you have? Do you like reading books about the sea or pirate movies? What? You know, I look at that stuff, and Hollywood is so unrealistic with sailing vessels. Always have been, and I've been a boat wrangler. Um, for movies, you know, they leave, they need boats, and so they call me for a boat. Get the, get the boat. Then you get to the movie, and and the people that are have are doing the movie have been watching too much Hollywood, and it, there's nothing realistic about it at all. Here's the thing. You know, walking the plank? Historically speaking, they can't find any record that that ever happened. Pirates wouldn't have done it. Oh, hell, they'd throw you overboard. They wouldn't, well, why would they tie a plank and make you walk it? They wouldn't be entertaining. Just throw you overboard. It's all Hollywood. There's no record of it. So you think, I mean, keel hauling and stuff, but walking the plank? <laughs> For what reason? It wouldn't have made any sense. And so, it, you know, it's great. Novelty. It's great to write about. 
trying to keep the story going, I guess. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, so right. They would keel haul and do some of those records of doing some of that punishment. And somebody might have, might have walked a plank somewhere, but you, you, historically speaking, you can't find it in logs. You can't find it anywhere. You can find it in poems and movies and books and all that stuff, but you can't find it in what really happened out there. So was... Was there any time when the victory chimes? Would the pirates come this far north? I know we had pirates up here in Maine. Yeah, but that was before this vessel was built. By the time um, we became a country, you know, and we really started to defend our shores, um, like after after like the eighteen twenties and eighteen, you know, about uh, well, no, even before that, about the eighteen fifties, eighteen forties, we really started to protect our ourselves because the British were raising hell with us. They were they, that's what they were stopping American vessels and taking American sailors off and then pounding them into because they said you're still part of the Queen and make them sail on uh, British ships and stuff. <clears throat> and that's what part of what the War of 1812 stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were still pirates. There's still pirates today. They use motorboats and not sailboats. But they would have come up this way. Sure. They, I mean, there's all sorts of. There was a guy a pirate named Dixie Bell that support, supposedly buried treasure in Damerskov Island and. In uh, off the coast of Maine, we had everybody's digging looking for them. But, you know. So yeah, there were pirates up and down because it was pretty remote. It was a good place to hide. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's what I was asking. I mean, this would be a great place for. Right, and then then of course they they had this is a lot more of that happened before we were a country. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more like this. You hear a lot of it down in Saint Augustine and oh, sure. Florida. The, you know, oh yeah, oh the, the, they ruled that place. North Carolina. Yeah, the, the Bahamas. They had this whole, the, the whole. They had this whole pirate nation, which was the first democratic society. It was really interesting. Everybody got a vote. It was really everybody was free there. Didn't make a difference who you were, or where you came from. You had a vote. It was a pretty interesting society. Now they were, they had to be put, they had to put that put, put down because they were stealing. But when you got to, into that country, you were part of that. Everybody got a vote. Everybody was equal. Didn't make a difference who, what, or where. Really interesting. The history about that. They were pretty fair amongst themselves. They weren't so fair about Robin. But, you know, that's how they made their business. But they, they, and it took a while for, finally, for the authorities to get rid of them. Because it was a pretty, good, cool, pretty cool society. If you showed up there and wanted to be part of it, you were an equal. It's like right after the, um, right after <clears throat> the Civil War, uh, those that the freed slaves had no place to go. So many of them went to sea because they had three meals a day, and they were I mean, that whole that whole generation was not afraid to work, and so that wasn't a problem. And smart as hell, they figured out this business pretty quick, and they were great. They, we don't write about them, but they were. There was wonderful. That whole generation, and then sailing ended. It was all gone, but they went to sea, and, and then and then the, the um, uh, whaling industry, in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, they were taking a lot of Indians. Yeah, taking a lot of Indians because they were very good at throwing spears, you know, and so they were great at that. And they had nothing else they were going to go. They were being swept away. Their whole nation was going to be swept away now go and they're going to feed you. Well, for a lot of people, that was a big deal. Three meals a day, I'll take it right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take three meals a day right now. I don't care what I do, I'll take it. Because that wasn't offered. Think of that. It's not much, we, we don't write much about it, but it was quite a bit of our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this industry was, 
Everybody on a sailing vessel was equal when they were sailing. Now, when you got to the dock, that was a little different. I can go there, you can't. Mm -hmm. But everybody was equal on a sailing vessel. Didn't matter if you were from China, Japan, Africa. Didn't make a difference. It didn't really matter. And they were, everybody was bilingual. They, they learned the language of the vessel. And so, and everybody's equal. If, if, if we needed to pull on the line, I don't care who you are. It's life or death. We're all pulling on this line. So, um, Working yeah, but when you got ashore, that was all the <laughs> things were different then. <laughs> totally yeah. Different. yeah, it was. It was. It was. Well, I know people will want to come and sail with you. Oh, I hope they do. You know what's great about it is, is um, you know, a hot day in Maine is 85. That's a hot day. And, and most of the time out here on the coast, because our water temperature is a little cooler, you know, it doesn't get in the 60s in the summer and stuff. When it's hot ashore, we get these sea breezes and it's cool. I've been out here wearing a sweater when they're complaining that it's 95 and humid ashore. So I would think I'd love the people from, from the south to get the hell out of the heat <laughs> and come north. And it's a great way to do it. It's a great safe way to do it and see part of the part of North America that very few people get to see. Because you can't see Maine from Route 1 driving up the coast. You can't see this. You can't. You wouldn't be able to experience any of this. To sit here in this harbor with this great old vessel and all these fun people. There's nothing else like it. It really isn't. That's all. But if they wanted, they'd find us. they find us on the web page, victorychimes.com. That's where we're, you know, we're on Facebook. We do all that modern stuff that people look at that I don't know how to do. I had someone else doing it for me because I'm inept. Capable. I can take and sew a stitch up an old traditional sail, but I can't work a cell phone. <laughs> that is perfectly fine. Right. Do you, have a, do you have a story or something you want to share with us? Like something that happened at sea or something happened during the time that you. Because people have stories. Well, so I can tell you, have, you a quick story. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a quick story. Sure. Well, it might be about five minutes. About. Did I tell you the story about my uncle Enoch? Now, Enoch is, is the name of my little pushboat. I did. I said it. Yeah, and it pushes it along. And I named that after my basset hound that did about 35,000 nautical miles. I had a basset hound named Enoch. He sailed with me. And I just finished building that boat. And so um, I named it. I took him ashore for the last time, so I named it after him. But he was named after an uncle that I had. And Enoch is a biblical name. I'm not sure how he fits in. But I know he was a begetter. You know, there's a lot of begetting. And Enoch begat somebody who begat somebody. But Enoch was part of the, the, the Old Testament. But it was a very New England name. You know, everybody's picking something out of the Bible. But I had an uncle by the name of Enoch. And back um, when we just had one-room schoolhouses in the state of Maine, about 1840, 1850s, something like that, after we became a state, the legislature said you had to pass sixth grade. You had to stay in school until you were in sixth grade. And you had to learn American history. So Enoch was studying American history. He was struggling with it because he... Academics wasn't as long suit as I've told as I've been told. So the teacher says, Now Enoch, I want you to stand up and tell me and tell your classmates who signed the Declaration of Independence. Enoch stood up, put his hands in his pockets, and looked around and said, I don't know, man. Frankly, I don't give a damn. Well, you can imagine how well that went. But knowing Enoch and really wanting to get him out of sixth grade before he starts shaving, she thought she'd give him another shot. So there was a question about Bunker Hill, Betsy Ross. Redcoats and all that stuff. And then, now we know. Giving you some time to think about this. I want you to stand up and really think about this. 
tell me and tell your classmates who signed the Declaration of Independence. You know, stands up kind of sheepishly, looking, rolling back and forth, hands in his pockets. He says, ma'am, I told you before, I'll tell you again. I don't know. Frankly, I don't give a damn. Well, that's all that teacher was going to take out, out of this classroom. Don't you dare come back here till you bring your father with you. Next morning, 8 o'clock, the school bell rings. In come all the kids. And in comes Enoch's father. Sits up, up back, solemn-like. And, of course, they had the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, and they always had a prayer. That was the first thing. They always started that with school. And usually it was, you know, cipher and arithmetic, but we might as well get right into American history because Enoch's dad's right here. So they go right into American history, and there's questions about... Oneth by land and twoeth by sea and Paul Revere and all the stuff. <clears throat> Finally, the big question came. Enoch, you've had all night to think about this. I want you to stand up and I want you to tell your classmates, tell me, especially tell your father, who signed the Declaration of Independence? Well, now Enoch got real sheepish. Stood up, looked around, looked at, looked at the kids, looked at the teacher, looked over his father, got defiant, said, ma'am, I told you yesterday, and I'll tell you again today. I don't know. Frankly, I don't give a damn. Well, Enoch's father wasn't going to take any type of behavior like that. Stood right up, grabbed Enoch by the, both ears, kind of a file straight. They hang out there, good angle. Crawled him right out, took him right outside and threw him outside that building. Said, now, Enoch, you know your mother and I aren't much for book learning. But by God, we've taught you the difference between right and wrong. If you sign that goddamn thing, you go in and tell the teacher right now. <laughs> That's the only story I got. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that yes. was a good story. Yes. That That's my story. Good. There's lots about this vessel, but they're not quite as funny. Oh, I don't know. You've been you see, I'm always trying to catch you with the mic. Yeah. I, I just think really of them when they come. They just sort of snap into my mind. Yeah. I mean, after a century, in a, in, over a century of sailing, there's a lot of cool things that have happened. Yeah, yeah. There was a mutiny once. There was a mutiny once because the captain didn't pay the crew. And so the crew threw the captain overboard because they didn't get paid. And then the captain finally got ashore and stuff like that. And they took him all to court and he won. The crew got all sentenced to jail for mutiny. Yeah, but maritime laws are a lot different than... And it was a, it was a different time. It was just a different time. But today that probably wouldn't happen. But yeah, it was a mutiny because they didn't get paid. And they threw the captain overboard. They all went to jail. <laughs> Whip no pay. Oh, no pay. All right, and then one of these vessels, one of her sister ships, was built just exactly like her during World War II, a torpedo. And it was had a cargo full of um, lumber, and it got torpedoed. And so back then, the Germans wise, they take everybody off. World War II, they wouldn't take anybody off, give them a warning, they have to go. But they told, and they, and they would bring them ashore. So they brought them ashore down near. Virginia. And there was one guy on that crew that knew German, and he heard the Germans talking about how they would come ashore and, you know, just go to the bars and do stuff, and they're on the submarine. <clears throat> this is how the story goes. And why ruin a good to- story with fact, right? But this is how the story goes. This is how I read it. And, and, and so the guys got back, and they said, well, these Germans torpedoed the vessel. Well, well. So they went and they caught the Germans. And they finally caught them. They all got incarcerated and stuff. But then the guy's saying, well, you know, our cargo was wood. And the vessel's wood. It's not going to sink. Let's go find it. So they sailed out and they find it. They tow it back to Norfolk, Virginia. Take the cargo out. Bring it up. Repair it. Put it back in the water. Put the cargo on and finish the voyage. 
<laughs> yeah, try that with a steel vessel. <laughs> oh, it would have been. Wow, Captain Kip, the one and only. <laughs> he is quite an interesting man. I mean, his story is just amazing. And we had some other conversations with him that, you know, just were throughout the whole cruise. There was always an opportunity to just stop and catch a conversation with him. He's quite available. He, he makes himself very available. And we got to explore his captain's quarters, very finely furnished. And yes, <laughs> a little different from ours. A little different, but... <laughs> You know, that was what's really cool is there's always something you can be doing to help the crew, but there's also all of these opportunities to have conversations, too. Mm. So you never feel like you're in the way or, you know, there's no time to ask questions. Mm. Everyone's very available. It's, it's amazing how they balance, you know, the constant upkeep and work that it takes to have the ship sailing. But they also are always available for conversation, too. You know, you bring up a really good point because you, the the crew is very available, like you mentioned. It doesn't seem as though, oh, we're doing all this hard work for, you know, the passengers on board. Don't get any feeling of that. But also, too, I found it really interesting to meet the other passengers. There were people from all over. There was actually someone who was a Falcons fan and knew Flowery Brent, so knew where I was from. So it was just really interesting to meet the various people and hear their stories some of them multiple times selling with the Victory Chimes or with other Windjammers. And it was, it was that was part of the highlight of the cruise, was actually getting to meet the people. That was a highlight. There were some people who had been saving up for that trip and dreaming of it for years. There was a lady who had been a passenger as a little girl yeah, and she's decades coming ago, back. and she came back. So there's all kinds of you know walks of life. And then we passed a couple other schooners on the water None with three masts, because the Victory Chimes is the only one, but a couple others with two masts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were girls' trips and people that had, like, knitting societies. They brought all their needles and yarn. So you can plan all sorts of trips oh, yeah. out on these ships and just have a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Absolutely. And this is an adventure that you all must put on your list of dream vacations. Actually, let me take that back. It's... Time for you to make that trip happen. Don't put it on any dream list. Make it happen now. <laughs> and you can do that by visiting the Victory Chimes website. It's very easy to remember, victorychimes.com. And I'm sure you all would like to learn a little bit more about just the Windjammer history. And you can do that by checking out the main Windjammer fleets of ships, their website, at sailmaincoast.com. Join us for episode four when we visit Pemaquid Lighthouse and speak with one of the lighthouse staff who shares what life was like for fishermen and sailors in the area. And it's such a neat connection, the lighthouse and the ship, because although the Victory Chimes itself was constructed in 1900, windjammers and schooners, they have a history that dates back to the 1700s. And as more ships were coming into the area, there was a greater need for safety. And that's what led to all of the lighthouses that you see up and down Maine's coast and all up and down our eastern coast as a whole. And Anita, when we went to Pemaquid, I mean, it took our breath away. It is one of the most beautiful lighthouse locations I've ever seen. Mm. So I'm really excited just to talk about the location, but again, talk with the lighthouse staff about what life was like for the fishermen and also the lighthouse keepers. They, yes. in fact, rescued quite a few people in the area. That's kind of an unknown 
duty of lighthouse keepers. So we'll dive into that in our kind of part two of the main state quarter. So stay tuned for our next episode. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Quarter Miles Travel, we want you guys to join us. As Olivia just said, we come back for episode four. But at this time also, Olivia, we have so many people to thank for making this trip available and possible for us. So Quarter Miles Travel would like to thank the following people and companies for their assistance with this episode. The Maine Windjammer Association, Marshall Communications, The Victory Chimes, Charlene Williams, Whitney Raymond, Brittany Morell, Lorraine Dubow, Marty Maine, Abe Levine, and Meg Maiden. And a very, very special thank you goes out to our guests and hosts of our selling, the one and only Captain Kip Files. Thank you for listening.